From Baptist missionary kid to professor of philosophy to directing a nonprofit in South America to Upper House. Meet Tony Bolos after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Welcome back to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. In this episode, I sit down with my new office mate, Upper House's new Director of Continuing Education, Anthony Bolos. We thought we'd use the podcast as a convenient way to introduce him to all of you. Over the last few months, I've enjoyed getting to know Tony personally and professionally, and I'm excited for the rest of the Upper House community to get to know him as well. Before joining us at Upper House, Tony served as the Executive Director of New Hope Peru, an organization that serves vulnerable children and families in Southern Peru. Prior to that, Tony was a professor of philosophy at Virginia Commonwealth University, covering a range of subjects including ethics, philosophy of science, and epistemology. Tony earned his master's and PhD in philosophy from the University of Edinburgh. He also has an MA in philosophy of religion from Denver Seminary and a BA in biblical studies from Crown College. He's published numerous articles and essays in the field of philosophy. One more note before we get to today's conversation. Upper House is launching a brand new podcast called With Faith in Mind, and it's available on all podcast platforms. It's a way for us to take a deep dive on complicated topics and bring top-notch experts to share their insights on the issues and questions that are relevant to us today. Please give it a listen. We hope you enjoy this Upwards conversation with our newest team member, Anthony Bolos. So, Tony, welcome to Upwards. How are you doing today? Doing good. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you've you so you've we share an office now, which is fun. Um, you've been in uh, you've been in Madison for two months or so now. How does Madison strike you? Uh, two months in, yes, it's been a couple months, and first thoughts are it's cold, um, and I think a lot of people probably have that impression. Uh, I find aside from the weather, which I think has been improving pretty much since since we got here. Um, yeah, it's, it seems like a pleasant place. People are nice. Uh, the driving seems pretty relaxed compared to where I was previously in Peru and Denver. Um, so yeah, it, it's a, it's a nice place. You, you came at probably the most inopportune time, which is January and February. Um, those are pretty rough months. Um, well, uh, for the listeners who uh, aren't familiar with Tony, he's our newest full-time staff joined, uh, in January just a few months ago. And uh, Tony, we'll get into exactly what you're doing here at Upper House, but we wanted to have this conversation to talk about uh, who you are, uh, uh, what brought you here to Madison, uh, what makes you tick. Um, So we'll get into, as a preview for the listeners, we'll get into your time as actually a faculty member, uh, your passion for philosophy and your passion for uh, the church, among many other things. But I thought we'd start by just getting a sense of um, your upbringing, um, uh, where you grew up, uh, sort of what shaped you as a young person. So um, take any part of that that feels comfortable to you, but sort of how do you uh, how do you want to start <laughs> your own story here uh, today? Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, 
I mean, we can start from the beginning. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, I people often ask me where I'm from, and mm. I never really know how to answer that. Mm. Um, I've lived in a lot of different places as a child, as a teen, and then as an adult. Um, but I think originally saying kind of where my family was from might be helpful. But mm -hmm. so I was born in upstate New York, uh, born into a, a Maronite Catholic family. Mm. I have very little memory of the Catholic Church. Uh, my earliest memories are from the Baptist church where my dad was uh, an assistant pastor. Mm. Um, so it's a little town called Utica, New York, which some people might've heard uh, if they watch uh, The Office. The Office, yes, right. one of the branches is there in Utica. One of the branches. Yeah. I think <laughs> in one of the episodes, Michael, Jim, and Dwight are going up to Utica. Yeah, they raid the Utica uh, office with, yes. for their copier, I believe. Yes. That's right, for their copier. <laughs> and then, yeah, things kind of <laughs> all go downhill after that. Yeah. Um, and there's some references in The Simpsons. I think one of the writers mm. is from Utica mm. uh, as well. So, yeah, it's a small little place, but a place of high culture. High clearly. culture. Yeah. I mean, it produced <laughs> me as well. So I think that's saying something. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so my dad was a, was a, an associate pastor at a, at a Baptist church up there. Mm. And those are kind of my earliest memories. Uh, you know, was being involved in every aspect of that ministry uh, from yeah. a very young age. So you said you were born into a Maronite Catholic uh, house. Uh, for listeners, just explain what, what that means. What were the Maronite Catholics? Yeah, so the Maronite Catholic Church, uh, they are in full communion with Rome, mm. um, but they're part of the Eastern Rites. Mm. Uh, and I have some friends that are, that are Orthodox, uh, and they often joke that the Eastern Rite Catholics look a lot more like the Orthodox mm. uh, Orthodox Church. And I think, you know, from going uh, as a, in the past couple of years, uh, I've had both of my grandparents pass away mm. um, on my dad's side. And I've gone to their funerals in the Maronite Catholic Church in Utica. And it does look a lot like an Eastern Orthodox Church. Mm. Um, so it, I don't know the full history of the church, uh, but I do know that there was a missionary there named Marone mm. who converted uh, all these pagans on Mount Lebanon. And mm. so... I assume my ancestors were all pagans and got converted. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I think it was the second or third century. So, wow. uh, and that was in just outside of Beirut, Lebanon. Hmm. So you, you mentioned, um, uh, sort of growing up in the Baptist tradition, how important was, was the Christian church to you as a kid faith? Were these things that were really active in your life or, or were they more on the side? No, it, active, it, hmm. everything kind of revolved around the church. Hmm. Um, if you grew up Baptist, you'll know that it was Sunday morning, well, Sunday school, Sunday morning church. Uh, I had a break in between, you're back at six uh, on Sunday, and then there's Wednesday night service, and then there's youth group on Friday, and Saturday morning visitation. Hmm. Uh, and so, and lots of little things in between if, you're, if your dad is on staff. So it was my entire life. Hmm. Um, I didn't know uh, anything different, and I didn't understand why everybody wasn't going to this church. It was hmm. so amazing. Mm. Um, and, and overall it was a very positive experience. Mm. Yeah. And, and, uh, just to fill it out, um, who was in your family? You mentioned your dad, who else, uh, who else was in your family? So yeah, dad and mom, mm. uh, they also grew up, they both grew up Maronite Catholic in the mm. same, in the same church. And then I have, uh, six siblings were, were seven in total. Mm. I have two older sisters, a twin sister and three younger brothers. Um, we, we all, uh, at one point were very active, uh, in, in this church. And where are you all sort of living all over the place now? Yeah, so I think some of my my sisters kind of moved south. Uh, upstate New York is very cold, mm. <laughs> um, so they kind of went south. Or a lot of them are kind of in and around Raleigh. I have a brother there as well, 
And I have two brothers uh, who now live in China, both married mm. Chinese nationals and have families in, in China. They both speak Mandarin now. I'm amazed by that. Mm-hmm. And they keep saying they're going to move back at some point, but I think their lives are, are pretty, uh, pretty full over there. And so my guess is they'll be there for a long time. Yeah, very interesting. Um, I'm even learning things about you here, and we share an office and talk a lot. So I'm uh, <laughs> glad to have the chance to talk through this. Um, uh, well, I think anyone who meets you, Tony, knows that you uh, exude love for philosophy and love for sort of thinking. So where did that come from? Like, if you if you just think about, was that something that was always with you, or or was it something that developed over time? Sort of this love for the life of the mind and and uh, philosophy in particular. Yeah, I just had this conversation with somebody a, a few weeks ago. I there was a college friend that I hadn't seen since graduation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I graduated college in uh, two thousand two, mm-hmm. dating myself a bit. Here. I'm doing math right now in my head. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, and. <laughs> So he asked me a similar question. I, you know, back then, obviously, there's no MySpace or Facebook. Mm. It wasn't around yet. So we just lost touch. I had a cell phone, but it only worked on nights and weekends. <laughs> and every text was like a dime. So yes, yes. Uh, I'm very cheap. And so I did not want anyone to get in touch with me unless it was urgent. I think that happened for a lot of people kind of ar- around that time. Like you mm. just lose touch uh, mm. as you move, move around. Um, but I think in college, it didn't really start until my junior year. Mm. And I think it was... Partly where I grew up, uh, I'll come back to this, but my parents were missionaries in Peru as well. Mm. And so we left upstate New York. And I think liking books and reading and, and intellectual conversation, uh, it wasn't that it was frowned upon, but it wasn't something that anybody did mm. in the tradition I was in. Um, and even though it was kind of always there and I was always curious, uh, it wasn't something that was valued. And so I spent my time, uh, high school years, in early college, thinking mainly about uh, playing soccer um, mm. and hanging out with people. And then one day I'll go be a missionary like my parents and mm. I'll have a wonderful life. Mm. Um, and so I think that was kind of my attitude. And then in my junior year, um, I, th- I, I would say God put these people in my life. There were two young guys who started reading Calvin. Um, mm. And it, I, I was part of a very... John Calvin, the like sorry, yeah, reformer. John Calvin, yeah, the reformer. reformer. Yeah, okay. sorry. Yeah. And... You know, our, our little Baptist college was uh, not that they were anti-Calvinist. I think they're all kind of closet Calvinist looking back, but they didn't like John Calvin mm. and they didn't want people talking about, uh, you know, the tulip. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, I think it felt like this little exclusive group. We were kind of secretly reading Calvin and uh, author Pink and some other mm-hmm. sort of uh, really hardcore Calvinists. And I think that's where I realized, hey, I, I really like this stuff mm. and I might like it more than just playing soccer or going to work for athletes in action, uh, this stuff really interests me, uh, and their ideas and the things they care about, even if I think now they're all wrong. Um, uh, <laughs> I think their ideas have stuck with me and sort of the, the rigor and their, their concern for knowing more about God's creation. Yeah. Well, um, uh, thanks for that. I'm thinking now that, um, we've jumped ahead a bit to, to your college time and, and that's my fault for, uh, moving us that way. But, um, uh, I know you spent a lot of time, uh, not in New York as a kid. Uh, you mentioned it briefly there that your parents are missionaries. So talk about, um, uh, yeah, how that happened. And then your time in Peru that it, I think was a lot of your childhood. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And I, you know, my, my dad, um, I said he was a pastor in, in, in upstate New York. We lived in, in kind of the Utica area, mm-hmm. but he also worked in these little, uh, towns kind of not, not far from there called Ilian, uh, Little Falls, New York. And these are very uh, working class, uh, some might say very impoverished uh, communities. I think my dad always had 
a a sense, and my mom, I should say, of wanting to minister to those kinds of uh, that group mm. of people. Um, and so I remember as a kid, uh, I think sometime in the early '90s, uh, we started getting these magazines uh, about South America, mm. and and there was one in particular where the cover of the National Geographic was a, a Peruvian or a Bolivian lady dressed in traditional sort of Inca, um, Inca dress. And so I, I remember my dad bringing it at the table and saying, look at, look how amazing this country is. Mm. And I was uh, 10 or 11 at the time and thinking, wait, what's going on here? Um, <laughs> and then it wasn't too long before, uh, my dad was taking a trip, uh, down to Peru and the, you know, and talking with missionaries down there comes mm. back and there's a big announcement that, Hey, we're going to move to Peru. Um, and back then it was, it was part of this independent Baptist church movement. And so it wasn't like the Southern Baptist church where they fund you to go. You had to drive around to mm. churches. And it's a word I think I mentioned to you and you had never heard of this word. Uh, well, you heard of the word, but didn't know how it was being used or applied. They used to call it deputation. And I've no, right. Right. <laughs> I have no idea if they still use that word, Yeah. but, uh, we began the process of deputation. It's where you go around and ask all these churches to basically give you 25, 50 bucks a month and mm. you have to go to quite a few. And so being a 10, 11 year old boy, my dad just kind of took me with him. Mm. Um, and again, lots of wonderful memories and experiences. Uh, mm -hmm. I don't look back in that time as a dark time. It was, it was wonderful to spend time with my dad. And, mm -hmm. you know, this is before obviously smartphones and iPads. There was a lot of talking about, uh, the Bible, dispensationalism, the mm. rapture, mm. Uh, things you know know mm -hmm. about as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so in, in 1994, after all the money was raised, we, we landed in southern Peru, had to keep it Peru. Fascinating. And uh, for listeners, uh, I pro I've probably mentioned this on episodes before, but uh, I also grew up a missionary kid. And so, yeah, hearing the word deputation, I just, my family did the same thing. We spent a lot of um, vacation time just visiting churches and sort of <laughs> updating them on the ministry and stuff. I, I just never heard it called deputation. And I, I still haven't asked my dad, dad, were we deputized? Like, or is that, <laughs> is that just a, a Baptist word or, or what? Um, uh, so uh, anyway, that, that's been a fun sort of shared experience as being kids and, and missionaries. Um, well, so you spent a lot of time in Peru. That must have been pretty uh, life-shaping. Uh, for your time, I know you're fluent in Spanish, and um, uh, uh, and yeah, and, and and then of course I've spent more time in Peru more recently as well. What is the sort of uh, way you'd summarize that? What what you took from Peru, or or sort of how Peru shaped who you are and how you think about the world? Yeah, so when my parents moved down there, I would say kind of early mid '90s, Peru was a very different country than it is now. Mm -hmm. um, I think if you look at the UNICEF kind of chart on, on extreme poverty. Uh, now it's thirty percent uh, living in extreme poverty. I think back then it was it was flipped. It was seventy seventy percent living in extreme poverty. So mm -hmm. a very wonderful, beautiful country. Some of my best friends are are, are still Peruvians, but uh, it was uh, going through some very difficult times uh, in the nineties. Mm -hmm. The Shining Path, which was a, a Maoist terrorist group, um, was still around, even though their their leader, who was a philosopher. Um, no. had been, had, yeah, <laughs> uh, had been captured. Um, for those who are kind of on the inside, he was a continental philosopher, not an analytic philosopher. So that, <laughs> that should say something. Um, we'll get to that distinction in a few minutes here. Yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I think if there were an idea or something that kind of described, um, my, my time there, uh, it was a wonderful time of growth, 
Uh, it was freeing. Um, I could hop on a bus and go anywhere in the city. Um, we were we were in Atikiba. I had a cousin come down to visit, and I was 15 or 16. My dad gave me uh, a little bit of money. I took a bus to Cusco, and we went to Machu Picchu uh, with no adults. And looking back, I would never let my kids do this. Um, but Peru is it was so safe. Um, and I went with my twin sister. Uh, who was my age. My cousin might have been 18. I don't recall, mm. but she spoke no Spanish. And, uh, you know, in, that was kind of my experience. It was going to Puno, uh, mm. going to Machu Picchu, and being able to sort of, if you had a quarter, you could hop on a bus and go anywhere in the city. And my dad let us do that, um, you know, with, uh, um, which could be surprising. We grew up in a very strict household, but mm. he was very open to us kind of living our life uh, as young teens and exploring mm. the city. Yeah. So, and that's something I did not have in upstate New York. I mean, yeah. you know, it's a bit more rural. Anywhere you want to get to, you got to have your mom drop you off at the mall. Mm-hmm. You walk around for 30 minutes and she's ready to go. <laughs> so that was a very, it was a wonderful experience. And mm-hmm. I don't want to speak for my siblings. Uh, they experienced Peru perhaps a bit differently. I don't know. But for me, it was um, an enriching and wonderful time. And it led uh, sort of my experience as a, as a teen uh, in Peru led to me wanting to bring my family to Peru mm-hmm. so they could experience some of the things that, that I had experienced as a, as a child. Yeah. Yeah. Um, was there any, uh, any point where you want, you know, consider just staying in Peru, um, more or less permanently, or was was the plan always to sort of come back, uh, to the U S or, or to go at least to somewhere else for education? You know, I remember there, there was a, a Baptist, uh, institute that was down there and some of the other missionary kids just kind of stuck around and went there mm-hmm. and i thought i wanted to go back to peru but i wasn't totally sure mm-hmm. but my my parents are very adamant and said no you need to go back do your last year of high school in the u.s go to college in the u.s mm-hmm. and then you can figure out if you want to go back to peru or somewhere else and do mission work mm-hmm. and I, I that you know that was looking back i'm very grateful that they did that i don't think a 16 year old at least me uh, me as a 16 17 year old did not uh, you know, have the foresight to sort of make those decisions uh, about getting educated in Peru and sticking sticking around. Um, mm. So I, I'm glad that they, you know, were a bit more level headed because uh, coming back was for me it was it was the right thing to do. Yeah, and then and then of course you caught the bug for philosophy in in your undergrad years. Where did you go? So I went to a place called Crown College, which almost nobody's heard of. I, um, I consider myself a pretty strong connoisseur of obscure Christian colleges and I had not heard of this one. So yeah, it's, it's so, and I'm glad it's so obscure. No one, no one's heard of it. Yeah. So they can't look it up and be like, Oh, what is this place? If you're listening, don't bother Googling it. I'll tell you a bit about it. Um, it is an independent Baptist. And I think, uh, if you want to tag on this fundamentalist word, it really was a fundamentalist college mm-hmm. and it still is. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know where things are with them today, but, um, very conservative, uh, you know, theology classes, theology for these institutions kind of started, um, you know, in the early 1900s with mm-hmm. the modernist fundamentalist splits. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's sort of where church history begins as well. Mm-hmm. I'm being a bit uncharitable. They might not say that, but that looking back and now as an academic and somebody who's studied philosophy and church history, that's certainly what it seems to me. Um, mm-hmm. And, but look, one thing I've taken, taken away from, from the Baptist church, that specific branch of Baptist was their love for scripture, mm-hmm. which I think is, has been really important for me and my, and my, and my faith and, as I try to uh, teach my my kids about God and, and the church and the Bible and things like that, I really appreciate the emphasis on on Scripture, which is they were really good at that. Yeah, 
yeah um uh I, I can imagine i didn't grow up in that particular tradition but a, another conservative evangelical one where the bible was uh, taken very seriously um well you know uh i think um i'm interested in hearing how you go from uh a sort of small christian college and you get the bug for uh for philosophy or in theology and sort of life of the mind and then i know i i know more about sort of where you end up in, in your education journey just tell us the story of, of sort of how you get to um, decide to go into PhD work and then ultimately uh, land on a PhD in philosophy is what you want to spend as admittedly like the next decade of your life uh, uh, doing <laughs> after that. Yeah. So <laughs> I, I spent some time uh, a summer, I think it was 2001 or 2000 in Venezuela mm. uh, doing a little mission evangelist trip, you know, uh, with some friends. I think at the time, looking back, that was probably the more attractive bit. Mm. Want to go to Venezuela, <laughs> uh, meet Venezuelans, um, and so I got some friends from the uh, from the soccer team. I played soccer at, at the college, and yeah, we went down there and did some kind of street evangelism, which, mm. looking back, uh, seems really foreign for someone like me. Mm. Um, mm. But this is kind of what we did. Mm. And I remember somebody asking me a question. You know, we had these little pamphlets we were handing out. And talking to people about the gospel, all, all good things. But he asked me something along the lines of, okay, can you show me or tell me why I ought to do this right here? And I remember kind of opening the Bible up and kind of showing him, you know, the Romans road, if you've heard that that mm -hmm. phrase before. Yeah. And he kept asking me questions and I, I just, I didn't know how to respond. And he was obviously somebody that that uh, was familiar with, with scripture, probably from, if I had to guess, from the Catholic uh, tradition. And he was really hammering me. And I'm 20 years old, thinking I'm really bright. <laughs> And I'm apparently not. I couldn't even answer somebody who comes up to me on the street and asks me what, looking back, were very simple questions about the gospel uh, in the church. And so that led to sort of this little group at, at, at this college that I went to, um, sort of really wanting to dig in a bit deeper, reading uh, people like Calvin and others mm -hmm. uh, and Luther. And it, at the time, it was not a, a philosophy bug, I guess you could say. I, I didn't really know what philosophy was back mm -hmm. then. Um, but I knew that the questions I was asking weren't the questions that people at this college were asking, mm -hmm. um, about, you know, uh, textual criticism. Uh, well, how, if, the, if the Bible's inerrant, why are there, uh, these supposed errors? What does that mm -hmm. mean? You know, so I'm asking questions that were a little bit outside the bounds, um, mm -hmm. of kind of a more traditional, um, Bible college experience. Yeah. So, and that led me to, uh, I was doing another mission trip. I was in Dominican Republic with, um, who was, it was the son of the president of the college. Mm. I think he's about 10 or, 10 or 15 years older than me. Uh, I speak Spanish, so he brought me with him with a small little team to um, Dominican Republic. And while I was there, I went to an inter internet cafe and decided to apply to seminaries. And if you grew up in the independent Baptist movement, there are a few places you can go. Right. Um, but I had decided there, uh, kind of secretly that I was going to apply to schools that were different. I knew I couldn't stay in that, in that particular tradition. I, I, I knew I didn't want to. Um, and so in Dominican Republic, I applied to, I think probably five or six seminaries, um, Dallas being one of them, Talbot, Trinity, Denver seminary, and, and a few other ones. Uh, and honestly I chose Denver because, uh, at the time it was a pretty cheap place to live. Mm. Um, it looked beautiful. Much different today in terms of much the, different today, yeah. uh, and they were the first ones to accept me, mm. and that is why I, I ended up. Yeah, there's uh, always a soft spot in the heart of the one that says yes first. Yeah, right? it was so quick. <laughs> and now that I'm in, I'm in sort of education, oh, they, they, you know, 
they accepted me because I was going to pay full tuition and, yeah. and you know. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so, um, but I remember I had to, uh, they looked over my, my transcripts and noticed lots of gaps in my education. Mm. I had never had a course in psychology or in philosophy. So I had to do some work before I got, even got to Denver seminary, had to mm. read, a, read two books and write two papers. Um, and I had no idea what those papers are, but <laughs> I'm sure they're terrible. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So you, um, I, that's another part of the story. I didn't know that you were applying to seminaries in the Dominican Republic of all places. That's probably, that's gotta be a unique place for, to get the IP address from for those, right. <laughs> for those applications. Um, um, well, I, I grew up in, in Colorado, at least for many years. So I know the Denver area a bit. Great place to be for a few years, particularly back when it was a little, a uh, little cheaper. Um, what did you take away from the Denver years? Like, what's the what's the sort of um, uh, and particularly thinking about where you go after that, uh, go deeper and deeper into the sort of world of philosophy. What did that formation at at seminary do for you? Yeah, so Denver Seminary used to have a program. It no longer exists. Uh, it was an MA in philosophy of religion. Hmm. And I actually just thought it was an apologetics uh, course. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. And at the time, there were three philosophers that were there, um, only one full-time, and they were two part-time. One of them was is Doug Rotice, who actually did his MA at UW-Madison with Keith mm. Yandel. Oh, yes. Um, so that's yep. a fun little connection. Yeah. And uh, so Doug was there. He, he is still there, actually. And a, a guy by the name of Stan Obitz, who was a longtime chair and professor of philosophy at Westmont College, mm -hmm. uh, who also did his PhD in Edinburgh, which I'll come back to in a minute. But uh, Stan uh, and I, I, it's weird calling him Stan. He's always been Dr. Obitz to me. <laughs> um, but he, he was the one, I took an epistemology course with him, and he, he really helped sort of guide me uh, in the process of understanding not only what epistemology is, the theory of knowledge, um, but sort of gave me the confidence to go on for more graduate work and, uh, spent a lot of time after class, went to his house as much as I could to talk philosophy. And I'm sure I was asking all the right questions, but, uh, what I was doing was I, I was curious and I wanted to learn. And I think he, he got that for me mm. and he really helped me, uh, as a Christian and, and to really start thinking of myself as somebody that could go get a PhD despite having a degree from a Bible college mm -hmm. uh, and despite not uh, really knowing anything about philosophy before getting to seminary. Mm -hmm. And I, again, I, I thought it was just a, an MA in apologetics. And so once you take an epistemology course, though, you realize, oh, this is, this is something a bit different. It's not just about defending uh, the Christian faith. Um, it, it's about uh, uh, something much bigger than that. It's mm -hmm. about thinking in a particular kind of way. It's about thinking about uh, these sort of big questions that uh, lots of people uh, over the past thousands of years have have asked and thought about. And it's not just about uh, questions that Christians have. Mm -hmm. There are these enduring questions that philosophers try to answer. So anyway, all that to say, I, I think it, I would say Doug played a big role, uh, but also I think for me personally, Stan Obitz was somebody that uh, encouraged me in my philosophical journey. Yes. If you can yes. still say that. <laughs> I think so. I think that's what we're on right now. Um, a philosophical journey, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> your philosophical journey. Um, so you've mentioned the word epistemology a few times. Uh, what, what is, like, what's a practical sort of 
type of way of describing what epistemology is. Um, you know, there's sort of the dictionary definition. Um, and then, yeah, if you can just sort of for the, for the undergrad initiate, uh, what is epistemology? Yeah. So I think a lot of people describe, uh, I hope this isn't the dictionary definition, Mm -hmm. but how do you, how do we know what we know? Mm -hmm. Right. And I think what a lot of epistemologists, uh, have thought about and the questions they've asked about this is, well, what does it mean to know something? Mm. Right. You say, you know, that I'm sitting in the room with you. Uh, how do you know that? Mm. And how did you come to know that? Right. And traditionally, we won't get into this here, obviously, if you want to come to a lecture in epistemology, mm-hmm. we can talk about it. But come on down to uh, Upper House. Yeah, yeah, come to Upper House <laughs> and we can talk about uh, these three components. But typically, uh, this, and this comes from Plato, uh, is that uh, you can you can say, you know, something if you have a belief that is true. Right. And that's mm. justified. And there are lots of problems with that. If there are philosophers listening, I am aware of the Gettier problem and all these issues. <laughs> but uh, that that is sort of a, a bare bones definition in, in, in the kinds of questions a philosopher might ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, an epistemologist mm-hmm. uh, might ask, right? How do, how do we know the things we think we know? Mm-hmm. And what does that entail, et cetera, et cetera? So, um, so this is what you study in your PhD work. Uh, is that right? So, so give, us, give us sort of the the story there of, of, um, embarking on a, a multi-year journey in epistemology. <laughs> yeah. So a- actually after Denver seminary, um, I wasn't sure if I was going to go on for a PhD or go into ministry. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of, uh, guys and girls like me, like us, we, we kind of wonder like, what's our role yeah. after seminary? Is it academia? And it wasn't downplayed at Denver. I think, mm-hmm. uh, Doug and, and Stan, they wanted students who could do it to go on and get PhDs. Uh, we need more Christian philosophers, they would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was really struggling with, well, what do I do? Do I mm-hmm. go uh, back to Peru? Do I try to church plant? Um, you know, do I become an apologist for the Christian faith? Mm-hmm. And so I took some time off after after seminary, actually went to Peru, mm-hmm. had applied to a bunch of programs, got into some, deferred, uh, and went with my, my wife, Julie, who I met at Denver Seminary. Mm-hmm. Uh, she was in the counseling program. I was in the philosophy program. We went to Peru for a year just to figure out, you know, what do we do? Um, it, it became pretty apparent when I was down there. I was helping in a church, helping work at the children's home. That yeah, I think regardless of where I end up, I really think I should go do a PhD in philosophy. I miss it. Uh, I, I want to be fully engaged for for uh, you know at least for a period of time in the life of the minds. And so um, we left Denver, went to Peru, and then while I was in Peru. Uh, we made that decision to to go to Edinburgh, hmm. um, and it was wonderful. I mean, it was uh, a wonderful experience for my wife and I uh, to be there. And I'll say I, I chose epistemology because at the time, uh, kind of the, the two Christian philosophers everybody was reading, and I think hmm. they still are, hmm. uh, is Alvin Plantinga and Nick Walterstorff, hmm. and they were epistemologists. Hmm. So I thought they were really cool. I still think they're really cool. <laughs> and so if they like epistemology, uh, maybe I should as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I knew deep down though, that really one of my core interests was philosophy of religion. Mm-hmm. Um, but Plantinga has this paper, uh, that he gave to a group of, uh, Christian academics at Notre Dame back in the eighties. Um, and some other stuff he's written about this as well, that if you're going to do philosophy of religion, you should study one of the core areas first. Mm-hmm. Don't go get a PhD in philosophy of religion and go get a PhD in metaphysics, epistemology, or philosophy of language. And so that was kind of my, uh, my in, uh, I guess, into, into launching into epistemology. 
Yeah. And uh, uh, I know as someone who's also written a dissertation, it can be tedious and often hard to relate to a general audience what you studied uh, for so many years and labored over to impress your committee. But in a few words, uh, what was your dissertation about, Tony? (laughs) This question was not on, this wasn't scripted. I don't know what to say. Um, No. (laughs) I get asked this all the time and I, I always mess it up um, <laughs> and I'm always honing it and changing it. Yeah. So, um, again, I've been out of the, I've been out of uh, academia for, for four years now. Mm. Um, so I don't know if it's still trendy to think about epistemology in this way. Uh, but there's an area of epistemology called virtue epistemology. Mm. And I, I, I mentioned a few minutes ago that people think of knowledge as having at least these three components, mm-hmm. justification, truth, and belief. And the controversial one is justification, right? Mm. There seem to be cases where you aren't justified. So you don't have knowledge, but you're justified, Mm. right? Uh, And you have a belief that's true. So there's been a lot of uh, talk over the years about this Mm -hmm. very specific area of epistemology. So in my PhD, um, uh, during my PhD years anyway, I should say, the trend was to move towards what's called virtue epistemology, Sort of focusing so much on sort of that bit, justification, evidences, what that entails, is to think about uh, sort of these faculties we have as individuals uh, or these virtues we have and how that contributes to knowledge acquisition. Mm. And so my PhD was was on that. And I, of course, incorporated Alvin Plantinga into it. Mm. Um, but it really was a PhD on virtue epistemology and the mm. sorts of virtues that inv- individuals can obtain and what that means um, uh, for knowledge acquisition. Yeah. And as a lay person outside of that conversation, I can see how that gives you pathways into talking about sort of more general conversations around virtue, around ethics, around sort of things that, um, might actually also really connect with church life as well, or, or with the church and concerns that the, the church has on, um, uh, and nonprofits and others, like it, it, it seems like a, a good vantage point um, to be able to think critically about a lot of first questions. Yeah, I think that's right, and I think this the, there's a reason why a lot of Christian epistemologists and Christian philosophers like virtue epistemology mm-hmm. um, because it does kind of go with sort of a lot of things we know about uh, the gospel, right, the yeah. life and death of Jesus, and I think uh, that's part of the appeal. Um, yeah. I maybe wouldn't have said that while I was teaching philosophy at VCU. Right. Um, but I think as I've left academia these past four years, uh, it, it's made a bit more sense of how, how these things are connected. And I should say that my my PhD in the end, it was epistemology, but I was uh, my main argument was about a very specific thing in religious epistemology, mm. um, which is kind of a, a subfield of more general epistemology. Mm. Well, you just mentioned VCU. So we just have a few more sort of uh, steps until you get to, to Upper House. Um, VCU being Virginia Commonwealth University. Um, where you taught for uh, four years, five four years, years, four yep. years um, as a faculty member. Um, I think what I'm uh, most interested in is uh, just hearing what um, what you learned as a teacher uh, during that time. So what, um, I know that's one thing that we found really appealing about you coming uh, to Upper House was that you had a passion for teaching, a passion for sort of translating these ideas that can seem really foreign to students in ways that they can, they can grapple with. Um, yeah. What did you learn about teaching and about sort of connecting with students at your time at VCU? Yeah, I, 
So I, I got to VCU. I spent a year doing a postdoc in Israel with the Templeton mm -hmm. Foundation um, and got this job in Richmond. Uh, and I think at the time I hadn't taught very much. Uh, mm -hmm. I did a bit of, uh, of tutoring and TAing while I was in Edinburgh. But the, the system in the UK is very different than TAing here or teaching here in the US. So they have these large lectures, which are usually done by uh, uh, faculty members, permanent mm -hmm. faculty members at Edinburgh, for example. And then the grad students lead these small seminars. Mm -hmm. So I think 12 was the max at the time. Uh, so there was teaching. I was doing a bit of lecturing, but there's a lot more of a conversation. I, I, so I get to Edinburgh, mm -hmm. tried to convince them that I was, a, hey, I can be a good teacher, trust me. Um, <laughs> and, you know, dropped into uh, a lecture with 120 students. Yeah. And so I think what I learned uh, by by the end was that don't have too many PowerPoint slides. Um, <laughs> I will say my first year, a lot of PowerPoint, a lot of notes on the slides mm -hmm. and a lot of confused looks, mm -hmm. right? And I think because of my personality, I, I connect really well with students mm -hmm. and they always felt comfortable coming by my office. My door was always open. So I had students in my office constantly. If you're trying to write and research, that can be really frustrating. Mm -hmm. But I, I really did look at my job uh, as being primarily about the students. And I know not not all faculty members see it that way. Um, but so I learned a lot about teaching from them. And so when they would come by my office and ask questions, I thought, oh, did you not see? I had like a thousand words on that slide. You didn't <laughs> capture what I was saying there. Um, and so having them come by and say, look, you, you mentioned this argument in class. And I got to be honest, I don't know what you're talking about. Mm. And so uh, it's easy for us to put the blame on the students. Mm. Well, you weren't listening. Were you on your phone or laptop? Were you distracted? Um, and I think what I learned is when they come by and they're asking questions, how can I present this in a way that they can capture the idea in class? And then mm -hmm. when they come by to talk to me, maybe there's a short time of clarifying but also it's them, when they come by my office, I want them to ask new questions. Right. Hey, so you said this in class, I wanna expand on this or explore this a bit more with you in your office. And I, I learned that during my four years there, that as I became a better teacher, I think my student evaluations evalu uh, uh, sort of illustrated that I did become a better teacher, hmm. um, that uh, I can clarify in class and, and that students still come by but maybe they're coming by for different reasons. And I, and I, I took a lot of pride in, in, in my teaching there at VCU. And yeah, and I honestly, my, my students there, if any of them are listening, they were a joy to teach. And I stay in touch with several of them. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them came to Peru to visit, um, mm -hmm. which maybe we'll get to in a minute. Yeah, but, yeah. Well, and that, that uh, story you told about, uh, about teaching just illustrates to me I think a lot of people, um, maybe even on the inside, but certainly on the outside, might think of teaching as sort of a mechanism for a teacher to deliver information to the student. And sort of the point of getting a degree or taking a class is to just mm -hmm. absorb facts and you know different philosophies and things. But of course, that's just the first step. And that's you really that's sort of the baseline for wanting to do, I think what you want your students to do in office, what you want your students to do in office hours, which ask new questions, yeah. explore these things from new angles, um, you know, create your own insights um, based on the unique, in, you know, the unique perspective um, that you're bringing to the material. Um, uh, but that, of course, requires mastering some basic material first. But um, I think particularly the humanities uh, always, you know, sort of feel this way, which is 
Um, I know as a historian, that's often the outsiders think history is just a bunch of lists of sort of dates and facts. <laughs> it's like that's just the ba- it's just sort of like the entry the ticket, and then you get to the fun stuff, which is the um, the, the exploring the meaning and the causes and stuff like that. And I assume philosophy is a lot the same way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say so. Yep. Yeah. And I think what I by by the end, I think maybe initially when I was first teaching, I did want to dump a bunch of arguments mm-hmm. and information on them. Here are the tools you need to be successful, right? And I think as my time was winding down at VCU, I I I, I changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I still want them to look at arguments and walk through and, and reason together uh, as a student and a, and a faculty member. But I, I, I was always looking for, okay, what's the takeaway or the question or the idea I want them to walk away with? Mm-hmm. Um, and by the end, uh, and I think this hit me, I, I took a an Uber from my house to the VCU campus. It was raining. I normally biked into work. And uh, the Uber driver had taken a class with me the previous semester. And I was like, oh, that's fantastic. Can you tell me something that you learned in my class? And he had nothing to say. <laughs> and I was pretty <laughs> devastated. Um, and so uh, and I think I, I've, I've read lots of things on this. This is not unique to my teaching or mm. philosophy. It's almost every discipline. Yeah. Kinda, how do students retain uh, information? Mm. So I would change my tactics a bit to where I, I wanted them to walk away with something, with some idea or principle, like, you know, maybe maybe I'm a bit less dogmatic about this particular belief. Mm. Maybe I should approach these topics or any topic, whether it be politics, religion, with a bit more humility and grace, mm. right? And a bit more generosity, mm. a bit more intellectual humility or epistemic humility. Th- those are the things or the concepts I was really trying to deliver and then give them examples, right? Of how, uh, you know, how that fits into these bigger ideas of, uh, of, of being graceful uh, and uh, generous with your interpretation of people's ideas. That, that was the big takeaway as I progressed as a teacher. Yeah, yeah, I, I resonate with that a lot. Well, we have one last episode, and it's the one that sort of brings you uh, right before to Madison, and which is um, a return to Peru. It's a stunning turn of events a at the end of the return to Peru. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so give us a sense. Um, I know you've, I know you've probably answered this question every time someone's looked at your resume or your CV. <laughs> um, uh, sort of what brought you back to Peru and 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 uh, leading a, a nonprofit organization uh, at that time? Yeah. So I, I had been on the board for this organization. Um, that my family had been involved with since the early '90s, and uh, off and on had kind of, you know, been on the board, off the board, and there were lots of exciting things happening with childcare in Peru. Mm. There was a team of four American families going uh, to Peru. Mm. Sorry, three. I guess our family would have been the fourth. Mm. Uh, and there were lots of other kind of reasons as to why I made this decision. Uh, but I think those are maybe two of the big ones. Right? Mm-hmm. Was uh, I want my kids to be in Peru? Um, at some point in their life, now's the time to do it. There's something really exciting happening in Peru. And I know that I have some skills and abilities that I can, uh, um, help the organization. Um, and part of it was helping the, the institution transition from residential care to, to more family-based care. Mm. And so that's, that was one of the big reasons. And we moved down there there were four American families at the time, maybe 20 Peruvian staff members. Um, so it was a very kind of exciting, and this was in 2018, mm. very exciting time to move to Peru. Um, and it was a really, really difficult choice. Mm. Um, and sometimes when I look back and people ask me why, I get a little nervous and my voice starts shaking um, <laughs> because I think, well, yeah, why did I do that? Mm. Um, and so, I, but I think those are probably the the reasons mm-hmm. uh, that that I did that. And 
it was a wonderful four years in Peru. So you mentioned it was exciting to you. What what was, uh, and, and I want you to just describe sort of what you did those four years leading New Hope Peru, but what, what was the sort of uh, the issue set that was so interesting and challenging to try to tackle? So uh, per- Peru right now, and this is changing in part because of the work uh, we did in Peru, uh, if there is a, a child that is at risk or has been abused, uh, the default is to place them in an institution Right. And unfortunately, Christian organizations, uh, you know, shoulder a lot of the blame for these kinds of things. Um, Mm. But yeah, that's kind of the default position. Let's put them into an institution. Uh, They'll get uh, scripture every day and all the workers there will be Christian. Nothing better. Right. Mm. Well, all the data shows that that ripping a kid from a home and placing them into an institution is probably one of the worst things that could happen to them. Mm. Uh, And, you know, intellectually, um, part of their formation process. It's all delayed uh, as a result mm. of these actions. And there is just boundless kind of data and research on this, that this is something terrible, especially from the, the from zero to three. Mm. And so Peru was kind of trying to figure out how do we take kids in these situations and place them in families. Mm. Um, and because of kind of where I grew up in Peru and the context I had, I knew that I could help, uh, help in some way. And honestly, it, it, you know, we did a lot of, uh, I ended up working with this guy named uh, Josh Wilkie. Uh, he was down there doing something similar. And uh, I think with him, uh, together, we, we um, uh, decided that uh, we can join forces and we can help kind of transition, not just our organization, but help move the country mm-hmm. towards, uh, towards this idea. Mm-hmm. And so honestly, it wasn't all that different from what I was doing with my students or in philosophy. There was a lot of sort of arguing. Right, presenting arguments uh, <laughs> as to why you shouldn't do this, why you should do something different. Um, so meeting with government officials uh, in my last year, there was a lot of those meetings, uh, meeting with different members of Congress, um, senior government officials and things like mm. that, and trying to convince them to work with us. Mm. And that was the most difficult thing is uh, trust us, uh, work with us. Like, who are you? You're this tiny organization with, mm. I think at the time, maybe 30 or 40 employees. Mm. Uh, we don't know you. Um, and I think it, it was spending years and years developing those relationships and trying to get them to, to, to let us do what we wanted to do. Yeah. Fascinating story. I think, uh, to, to sort of bring it to, uh, upper house, um, it's just, there's so few people that I've come across that have, um, this set of experiences in terms of work experiences and, and skill sets. And particularly, I mean, we didn't, we sort of, uh, glossed over, um, you've published a number of sort of peer-reviewed articles and sort of done that whole type of thing in the academic world. You have all this teaching experience, experience as a, a faculty member, and then also this this experience, not just leading a nonprofit, but um, working with a government and sort of getting things done on the ground. So, um, you know, fascinating. We're excited to have you here uh, at Upper House to uh, use all those talents for what we're doing here. Um, two, just two last questions. The first is uh, sort of what made you interested coming to a place like Upper House and moving your family uh, once again uh, to <laughs> to a town you had not been to before. Um, and then the second is is uh, what uh, uh, you know what do you hope to get done at least at least here in the first sort of phase. Uh, we're a very uh, fluid, nimble organization, so no plans last uh, for too long on that. But, but uh, let's start with the first, and just what what, brought, what what made you interested in in Upper House? So I think I mentioned this early on that when I was in uh, in seminary in Denver, 
I I was really struggling with do I go into academia or do something in ministry. Mm. And when I we left Peru, the we didn't we left in part because the project was really uh, only four or five years. That's what we had planned. Hmm. Uh, the organization now has, it's run by almost all Peruvians. There's 50, hmm. over 55 employees now. Uh, it's grown quite a bit and they didn't really need us down there anymore. Hmm. So uh, all the four families that were down there were all gone now. We all hmm. left and I, I think that's probably a good thing. Hmm. Um, and so I wanted, I, I thought I would just go look for another job in philosophy and academia. Um, and, uh, yeah, go back to doing the philosophy thing. Hmm. But I had, a, I have a friend who, uh, works in the Shota house, a seminary not far from here. Mm-hmm. He told me about upper house, um, and said, Hey, they might be hiring. You should think about it. It's sort of, it's, it's academic, but also kind of works, uh, with the church, the university, you might find that really appealing. It's kind of in the middle. Hmm. And so, yeah, that's, um, that's what I did. I applied. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I, I like the idea that it does a bit of, it gives me time to think about philosophy, maybe do some writing, have the academic side, but also figure out how to translate that for the church, for the university and for the community. Mm. And I think I find that, that bit really appealing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, and, uh, you were hired as the director of continuing education, which is this new part of, uh, our programming here at upper house. We're trying to think about how to, um, uh, do more than, uh, and not to diminish, but do more than one-off events and sort of bring speakers in and think about how can we consistently engage with our community. Um, I know you have a passion for sort of Christian formation, intellectual formation. How can we actually get people to be thinking in new ways and, and really integrating the gospel into the way they think about the world? Um, what are some of your hopes for the first uh, season here as you're um, getting your bearings here in, in Madison? Yeah, so I think what I hope for the position anyway, and what I want to do is, um, and I've been working on this, uh, Dan just read a first draft mm-hmm. of this, but develop something like a philosophy of Christian formation or education um, and use that as kind of a guide mm-hmm. um, into what I hope we can do as an organization. Uh, maybe it's just something as simple as offering courses, mm-hmm. right? And bringing in other fac- different faculty members from UW, uh, or from other institutions to come teach these courses. I want to think maybe a bit bigger than that or a mm. bit differently and more uh, strategically about this. But, uh, you know, and so uh, I don't know what it looks like. I don't know mm-hmm. what we're going to end up doing in the end. But I, I am passionate about figuring out how to uh, take this content, take this knowledge, uh, and all this wisdom at Upper House with all these, uh, with, with all the faculty that um, that are at UW, and how do we communicate uh, to the church effectively mm-hmm. and to the community and to the university and, and things like that? So yeah, that's that's kind of my my vision. And again, I, I've been told I have a few months to think about this. It's been two months. <laughs> so I suppose I'll have to produce something in the next month. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, a few is a sort of a, a loose term, right? It, it usually means three. Um, <laughs> uh, yes, and, um, and uh, you know, one thing we've been, uh, putting Tony through is endless uh, meetings with people in the community. Um, and it's a sort of crash course in the thick networks mm-hmm. that we have here at Upper House. A lot of pastors, um, a lot of others uh, in that area. So, uh, you know, one thing you're doing is just getting to know the community in a way that um, uh, others of us who were hired on who had lived here before sort of uh, got to do that in a more leisurely pace. <laughs> you get to do it in the quick, the quick crash version. Um, uh one more question. Yeah. Um, and this is this is uh, just one of curiosity of mine. Um, 
if you had to assign a philosophy text for uh, sort of the general upper house audience, say like, this is the thing you need to read to really, um, it would just improve your life. Maybe it wouldn't be a mountaintop moment, but it would be um, just a good thing if everyone sort of had this text under their belt. What would it be? So you can find my PhD um, and my, <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, don't read that. Um, wow, that's a tough question because I, I'm thinking of sort of Planiga's books on war to Christian belief. Mm. Um, I'm looking at one of his books right here, which was really, uh, really good. Mm. Um, where mm. the conflict really lies. Um, so, yeah, I I think a book that I read recently that is a bit more popular. That uh, it's written by a philosopher who does uh, a lot of theology and kind of bridges the worlds of theology. Uh, and philosophy is Jamie Smith at Calvin, mm -hmm. and I don't. I wouldn't call past a, upper house speaker, by the way. Oh, oh, okay. He, he so a few years ago, um, yeah. yeah, you guys know who he is then. And I, yeah. I don't know if this, if I would call this a philosophy book, um, but you are what you love. Mm -hmm. I think that I've read it a few times now, um, in some small groups as well, and kind of led discussion on it. So that'd be something if you're looking to get into, you know, really shallow waters. Right? Mm -hmm. That's a nice little introduction into into Aristotle, into philosophy, and how philosophers uh, have tried to think about things they know about philosophy and translate that for the church. That's 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 maybe a book I might recommend. Yeah. Maybe not book, what yeah. you're looking for. If no. you want something a bit more philosophical, that can be for a second episode. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Tony, for your time. Thanks for sharing uh, your story. And uh, if you are in Madison, uh, drop on by and uh, say hello. Uh, if not, make sure to check out our website uh, for everything we're doing. And particularly as we get this continuing education, uh, whatever it looks like, uh, going up uh, over the next uh, year or so, we'll obviously be updating our website as well. So thanks for your time, Tony. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.